So um, I do have a lot to, <laughs> to cover today. Maybe I should not have said that. But um, I do kind of have a lot of stuff to cover today, but we will uh, go straight into the Word. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn them to the book of Exodus. We're going to be reading chapter 4. So Exodus chapter 4. I'm reading from the ESV, and it says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Verse 5, That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak, and he put his hand inside, back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in um, the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Verse 13, and he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Amen. This is God's word. So this passage here, is, is, it kind of sounds abrupt, right? We're not in a series or anything, but I think this passage really is so near and dear to my heart, and I will explain why later. Um, so this passage that we just read, it, it comes right after the story of the burning bush, right? The burning bush is probably one of the most well-known stories of the Bible. And this is where God appears to Moses, and he calls him to be his servant. Moses being, as you know, one of the great hero, heroes of Israel, he's the author of this book that we just read, Exodus. And in the section, we kind of see his origin story and how he got his calling to become Israel's leader. At this time... The people of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. They were forced to do manual labor. They were treated as second-class citizens. And their entire life was marked with suffering. At one point, God, he hears the loud cries of his people, Israel, suffering. 
He remembers his covenant, his promises to Abraham. So he's going to act right now in this instance to deliver his people. And he's going to start with Moses. So God appears to Moses supernaturally in this burning bush. And we see that uh, what, the, what, what Moses tells us is that the bush is set on fire, but the leaves, the roots, the trunks, right? It's, it's not being consumed by the fire. So Moses, he sees this. He sees this weird supernatural phenomenon taking place. And he's like, what in the world is going on? So he goes to the bush to observe it. And this is when God calls him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. God says to him, I have seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry, and I know their suffering. Now I'm going to use you, Moses, to bring my people out of slavery and into the land that I promised to Abraham. And this is where God, the God of Israel, he reveals himself as the great I am. This is where we get God's proper name, Yahweh. So God here, he, he's giving Moses this amazing call to be his right-hand man, to be the leader and the face of Israel. So how does Moses respond? And this chapter, what we just read, we see Moses' response. So for two full chapters, chapters 3 and 4, we see Moses' reluctance. Moses asks, who am I to go up to Pharaoh? God responds, I will be with you. Moses then, in reluctance, he, he says, who, who do I say sent me? God says, tell him Yahweh sent you, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And from that moment, God, you know what he does? He lays out his entire game plan to reassure Moses because he knows that Moses is freaking out, right? This is a huge calling. He's freaking out with fear and doubt. And he pretty much says to Moses, look, this is what's going to happen. All right, Moses, I've observed you your entire life. I know your past. I know you before you ran away from Egypt. But I promise that I will bring you and Israel out of affliction to the land of milk and honey. Now, the promises that I made to your ancestors many years ago, I'm going to act upon, I'm going to act upon fulfilling it right now. So Israel, they will listen to you. They're going to rally behind you. But here's the thing. Pharaoh will not. The leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, he's not going to listen to you at first. But when Pharaoh doesn't cooperate, this is when I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt. Then, after I do that, he will let you go and the people will be free. That's the game plan that God gives to Moses. Isn't that our dream? Wouldn't that make us less anxious? Wouldn't that give us all the faith that we need? It'd be so awesome for God to appear to us in a burning bush, right? It'd be so awesome for him to give us a full, detailed, cleared, uh, a very clear, full game plan, just like he did with Moses, right? Hey, you're going to go to this university. Uh, it's not going to be your dream choice, but I promise you, that's where you're going to make your networks. You're going to make your connections, and you're going to be employed, unemployed for two years. It's going to be hard. That transition from being a student into a young adult, um, it's really hard. But I will be with you, and I'm going to help you find a church. Then I'm going to give you a job. You're going to be single for a long time. But trust me, I will provide you with community. And someday you will get married. You will have children. You're going to serve the church. Wouldn't that be so awesome if God just, like, gave you those detailed, like, events of what's going to happen in the future? Wouldn't it be so awesome if God gave you, like, 
like a year heads up on suffering and hardship to come. Like, hey, in a year, by the way, it's going to suck. This is what's going to happen. But here's what you need to prepare for that. Do this and you will thrive. What if God gave us reassurance after reassurance after reassurance? But how does Moses respond after, number one, God shows him a supernatural sign, the burning bush that is not burning. Number two, how does Moses respond after God answers all of his questions, all of his doubts? And number three, God gives him a game plan, and he tells him what's going to happen in the future, right? Pharaoh is not going to cooperate, but once I strike Pharaoh, he's going to listen to you, and then you're going to take Israel out. What's his response to all that? Moses still has doubt. He's still reluctant, and this is what we read in today's passage. Here's Moses' first concern. His first concern is this. God, I'm pretty privileged and honored that you would think of me to be, you know, your representative. But they're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to my voice. Did you know that Moses was actually rejected by his own people? Out of anger, he murdered an Egyptian for mistreating a fellow Hebrew, and his own people didn't get his back. Moses is probably thinking, oh my goodness, why would they listen to me? I'm a murderer. They don't even have my back. There's no trust and loyalty between us. But here's how God responds. He shows three more supernatural signs. Isn't that crazy? Like, Moses expresses explicit disbelief, lack of faith, and God is like, I'm just going to show you more signs. So here's the first sign. God turns Moses' staff into a snake. And Moses, when he picks it up by the tail, guess what? It turns back into a staff. Now, we have to ask this question, why, why a snake? That kind of sounds weird. God could have turned that staff into a bear, into a pigeon. Why a snake? Well, if you look at the images of all the different pharaohs of Egypt, like King Tut, I, don't, I forgot his full last name, full name, but King Tut, right? You see the headdress that he's wearing. And if you look towards this area right here, there's actually like a serpent. There's a snake. Why? Because these snakes were symbols of snake deities in the Egyptian pantheon. So for Pharaoh to wear that snake on his headdress, it's a reminder to Egypt that Pharaoh is supported by these snake gods. He is certified. And this became kind of like the national symbol of authority, the serpent, the snake. So right when the staff turns into the snake, the Moses, he runs away from the snake. And, I mean, imagine if your coffee cup turned into a tarantula. Like, I, I'd piss my pants, right? Moses runs away from the snake, and after the, snap, the staff turns into a snake, God tells Moses to pick it up by the tail, not by the head. The tail is dangerous, right? You pick it up by the tail as a sign of dominance. And dare I say, disrespect towards the snake. This is so interesting, because the snake, the symbol of royal Egyptian authority, turns into a mere piece of wood. You know what God is communicating here in this sign? God is saying, I own Pharaoh. I own Egypt. Not only that, um, Egypt and the entire world lies at the mercy of my fingertips. Yeah, of course, Egypt is currently the world's greatest power, but I am the one who put them in the place of prominence. And just as I put them in a place of prominence, I could bring them down and to a place of destruction if I wanted to. That's the first sign. And he gives another sign. This is the second sign. God tells Moses to put his hand in his pocket, in his cloak, and when he took it out, he had leprosy on his hand. 
and he tells him to, God tells Moses to put his hand back into his pocket, and when he takes that out once again, it's healed, it's normal. Now, for us today, leprosy doesn't mean anything to us. But leprosy in that time and culture is what cancer is to us today. You see, leprosy was the worst sickness to have, and it was incurable at that time. Even Egypt, the greatest power in the world, with all their technology, with all their great doctors and their magicians, they couldn't figure out leprosy. But to God, leprosy was a joke. God is saying, you know, that one sickness that you're researching for your entire life and struggling to figure out, that's child's play to me. I am in control of death and disease and also health and life. That's the second sign. Here's the third sign. God says, if they don't believe you, take some water from the Nile, the Nile River, and pour it on the dry ground. And when you do that, guess what? That water is going to turn into blood. That's weird. <laughs> it sounds like a, like a horror film, right? Like water turning into blood. What's the meaning of this? The main reason why Egypt became the world's power was because of the Nile River. The Nile River was so important to Egypt. It was their source of agriculture, their source of economy, and the river itself was actually used a lot for trade and commerce. So here's the thing. If there is no Nile River, especially for a desert country like Egypt, there is no kingdom of Egypt. Egypt would totally not be a world power. The Egyptians also knew that the Nile was so important to their prosperity, so guess what they did? They worshipped the Nile River. You know, you can actually look up in Google, praise songs about the Nile River, right? Instead of oceans, we're singing Nile River, right? By turning the Nile water into blood, God is saying, I own nature and the elements, water, land, oxygen, fire, storms, earthquakes, tsunamis, all obey my voice. I'm in control of that. Now, God uses signs to prove to Moses that he owns Egypt. He owns health and disease. He owns nature. So does Moses finally go to Egypt? No. He's still reluctant. And at this point, if I were God, I'd be so pissed. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to set you on fire, and I'm going to send someone else. Here's Moses' second concern. His first concern was, they're not going to listen to me. But his second concern is this. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And scholars, they say maybe Moses had some sort of speech impediment. Or maybe his Egyptian was rusty because uh, he was living outside of Egypt for 40 years and working as a shepherd before he came back. So if you don't use a language for 40 years, chances are you'll probably lose it, right? So can you imagine if God called me and Hoon to go to North Korea? And God's like, hey, I want you to rescue the North Koreans. And if you know anything about me, my Korean is probably the worst in this room, okay? Um, like, if, you, if that were <laughs> made into a movie, it would not be a tearjerker drama. You know, it would not be a super fun action movie. It'd be a comedy. Like, can you imagine me and Hoon, we're standing in the presence of Kim, Jong- Kim, Kim Jong-un, right? And we're just like, Annyeonghaseyo, yeah, Annyeonghaseyo. Neidem and Randy, Jega Hoon. Uh, right? So if you don't understand what I said, I pretty much said, uh, hi, uh, Kim Jong-un, my name is Randy, this is Hoon. I probably said it wrong, I don't care. And I said, God is angry in a very, like, second grade elementary Korean. Okay? Like, whatever the case is for Moses, if he had the speech impediment, if he sucked at Egyptian, or if he just wasn't a good public speaker, 
Moses at the heart was doubting his competency. That was his concern. So how does God respond to that? God says, who has made man's mouth? I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to speak. It's like God is baby feeding Moses. And he says, now go. And at this point, you would think Moses finally went. But no, he just gives up. You know what he says? This is his response to all of that. Just send someone else. Just send someone else, God. I can't do this. And God's response was this. His anger was kindled against Moses. Whenever you see that in the Bible, God is pissed off. Pissed off to the point where, like, he will actually, like, dis- like kill someone. That's, like, the level of his anger. And God, at the peak of his anger, he says this. He doesn't chastise Moses. He says, I'm going to let you go with your brother Aaron. That's crazy. That's God in his anger. You know, he doesn't say, uh, I'm going to bring wrath and judgment to you for being so stupid and foolish. But he says, in his anger, I'm going to send help for you. Aaron will help you out. The story of Moses' calling is so important to us because it exposes our doubts. It exposes our reluctance in obeying God, doesn't it? You know, it's really easy to criticize Moses for being faithless. It's really easy to blame Adam and Eve for our problems. But switch Moses with Randy, right? Switch Moses, Adam, and Eve with any other human being. It would be the same result. Because at the end of the day, the human heart is so faithless and fickle. The story of Moses and his calling that we just read is really a mirror to our doubts and our reluctance to obey God. From the story, we see Moses' reasons for his self-doubt. And there's three. There's three reasons why. Number one is this, past sins. Moses' reluctance is fueled by his past sin. Let me explain. I mentioned earlier that Moses actually killed an Egyptian out of anger. Moses was a murderer. Isn't that crazy? Like, one of the heroes of the Bible was a murderer. He struggled with this sin. And I'm pretty sure none of us, I hope, has never murdered anyone. But murdering someone, it's actually super traumatic. Taking someone's life isn't something that you just forget about. This is the baggage that sticks to you. You'll carry it for the rest of your life. And I'm sure Moses was thinking, how the heck is God going to call me to be a leader when I'm far from perfect? I mean, I killed someone. This shows us that our past sins affect our life more than we think. And yes, of course, in Christ, there's forgiveness, there's mercy, there's grace. But the residue of still dealing with um, the shame and the effects of the trauma is still with us. Here's what I realized. In our Christian life, it's very possible to have the gospel be over a lot of the areas in in our lives but we still struggle with shame over past sin. Whether if we have sinned or whether if we've been sinned against, we all struggle with shame. And that's the shame that drives us to not repeat the same mistakes. It, it leads, that shame drives us to be perfect. This is what uh, one pastor said about this. Um, the worst of our past sins are still the greatest source to be perfect in this world. 
our perfectionism isn't driven by a desire to be like God or be right by God, but it is driven by the shame of some of the worst things that we've done. And of course, he's talking, you know, in the battle of spirit and flesh, he's more talking about our fleshly, our fleshly uh, nature, right? And, and certainly there are days where some of us, we do feel victorious. We, we, we feel so hopeful, but certainly there are also days where we're just overwhelmed with the shame of some of the worst things we've done in our lives. And that shame from our past sins, that baggage causes us to be reluctant. Because deep down inside, I think we kind of know in our head that there is forgiveness of sins, right? The, the wrath that, reserve, that we deserve is met in Jesus and in the cross. But even though we know that in our hearts, the shame is too much for us to really consider, oh man, is God's grace really over this? And sometimes we doubt that. We wrestle with that. That's the first uh, barrier, I guess. The first reason for um, his self-doubt. His first barrier, I guess, uh, for obedience. Here's the second thing. It's the fear of man. What will people think? Moses was concerned about how Israel would receive him. He was worried that they won't believe him, they won't listen to him, and he was afraid of rejection. Friends, I think you know, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be Christian, you have to expect to be rejected. You have to expect to be doubted. People will hate you. People will make fun of you. And every mistake that we make, especially when we have that Christian label under us, will be magnified. I think some of the worst things that I've done in my life were probably in middle school. I was the worst at middle school. I think at middle school, I was like the closest to hell. (laughs) And in middle school, like, let me give you some examples. I made at least, at least, I have evidence of this, at least two teachers cry, probably more, okay? And recently, I started to substitute teach, and it's so fun. I ran into one of the teachers that I hated the most in middle school. I hated her so much, and she's one of the teachers I made cry. And for that entire year in seventh grade, I, my, my goal in life was to get her fired. That's how terrible I was. So I ran into her. She's retired by now, and she was subbing the same day I was subbing, the same middle school I went to. And she clearly remembered me when I said the name, Randy Cho. Boom! Flashback, right? I triggered her. And she said, I remember you. I had you in homeroom, and you got me in trouble. I actually did get her in trouble. Yeah, she said that to me, and I was like, I'm so sorry for all the grief I caused you. So it's so funny. I keep running into different staff and administrators that uh, were at my middle school, and they, you know, they're teaching at different schools in the same district. I would run into them, literally just two words, Randy Cho, boom, they know who I am. I did all of that. I caused all that trouble while I proudly said, I am a Christian. Can you believe that? And all my teachers, all my friends had a negative view of Christianity, especially because the way I behaved and the way in how I portrayed Christianity. You know, there's a reason why I don't have a fish on my car, especially when I have road rage. You know, there's a reason why I don't wear shirts with Bible verses, especially when I go to the golf range. Right, James? Like, for me, I don't, like, basketball, I'm totally chill. But golf, oh my gosh, all the demons come out. It's crazy. Like, I really don't, like, say bad things, but golf changes me. It's, it's, I should stop golfing, right? And once people find out I'm a Christian, once people find out that I'm a pastor, people become more critical. That's when the microscope, microscope gets super intense. 
That's why whenever people ask what I do for a living, like when I run into people um, subbing, for instance, I'm like, oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I'm a pastor. Right? Or um, this is a cool one that I used to. It's a nice excuse. I work for the church on the weekends. <laughs> right? I'm ashamed because I know that having that title as a Christian will lead to rejection, will lead to doubt, will lead to me being hated. And that is how the fear of man drives us. Like Moses, I feel like some of us, we we struggle with this. We care about how other people think about us. So we have our past sins, number one. We have the fear of man. Here's the third reason for Moses' reluctance. Our perceived incompetence. What I mean by that is we think we're not good enough. And not on a moralistic uh, level, but on kind of like a practical level. We're just not gifted enough. We're not skilled enough. We're just chumps. Moses knew he was an average person. He was a shepherd, no one special. He had self-doubt, and he said he wasn't eloquent, and he was slow of speech. Many of us, maybe some of us today, might think that we're just not good enough. We're not bright enough. Uh, we're not educated enough. We lack competence. We lack experience. And we, got, we give God, essentially, excuse after excuse. So there's a guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer. He's a popular uh, theologian and a pastor in like the 60s and 70s. And he, he actually preached the message on this passage. And the title of his sermon was this, No Little People. No Little People. And this is what he said. If God can use a stick, if God can use a cloak, if God can use water for his glory, right? if God can use these small insignificant things to bring people out of slavery and to start a nation, imagine how much God can do with you. How much more precious are you than wood, clothes, and water? When we fear that and we kind of forget, God can use me as insignificant and as weak and as incompetent as I am. So I want to ask this question then, how is God calling you? Right, because the story is really about the calling of Moses. How is God calling you? Moses had a specific calling, but what is our calling? Now, my job isn't to tell you who to marry, newsflash, what job to pursue, where to live, or how to budget your money, how to spend your time, or anything like that. However, God has given us, the church, a clear lifelong calling, which is to make disciples. Make disciples. So I want to leave you with one application. Invite your friends and coworkers to come out to church. Very simple. Invite your friends and coworkers to come out to church. I, I've been praying about this. I've been praying about our church a lot. And I think God is moving our church in a direction to specifically seek those who don't know the gospel. Because I think in our community, in our uh, different churches who are very similar to us in culture, uh, I think a lot of the attention is on people who are already saved, you know, already, like, Asian-American. But I think God has intentionally placed unbelievers in our lives right now. And maybe he's giving us the opportunities to be salt and light to our neighbors. And it's challenging, right? Inviting people to church assumes that you're going to have those weird, difficult conversations. This is hard for me, too. And it made me wonder, why am I reluctant to bring people to our church? What are the doubts and the fears that are driving that for me? And I thought about it. Well, number one, yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. Uh, number two, I fear rejection. 
right? Number three, I feel incompetent. Uh, it's just practically hard to find opportunities to talk about the church. But more than all of that, if I were to be honest with you guys, my main reason for reluctance to bringing people to church was my cynicism. I'm extremely ashamed of this church, especially as a leader here, because there was a time in the past where I felt really, really bitter about church. Maybe some of you have felt the same way. If I were to be honest, I I hated our church culture. I thought we sucked. (laughs) And of course, right now, I feel so much different about our church right now. But back then, I just had such a poor attitude about our church. In my sinfulness, and I'm very ashamed of this, I would think, why the heck would people want to visit our church when there's better churches like a mile away? This is me and my sinfulness. And here's what I failed to realize when I was so critical about the church. The gospel comes to life in our suckiness. I know suckiness is not a word, but I'm just going to use it. The gospel comes to life in our suckiness. The gospel comes to life in our weakness. This is why I was rebuked because of my sinful, poor attitude. I had poor expectations of the church, and I failed to realize that the church is not a social club for the spiritual elite. The church is not the place where we get to live out our dreams of having friends, like the TV show Friends. The church isn't supposed to match my own personality, like ESFPs everywhere, or Enneagram Type 2s everywhere, or my preferences. The church At the end of the day, friends, it's a hospital with spiritually sick people. And here's the reality of the church. Some are recovering and some are dying. The only time we'll be fully healthy and without sin is when Jesus comes to bring restoration to this broken world. The church is not designed to be insular and to ourselves. The church is designed to be outward and our function is, All of us here today, especially if you are a member of this church, our function is to proclaim and to display the message of the gospel to those who are perishing. That is why we are here. This is why we meet every Sundays. And you know, the shooting that happened last Thursday, that's just a reminder that there's an urgency to proclaim this good news of eternal life and hope. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways we can be obedient to the call to make disciples is to invite unbelievers to our church. And I'm preaching this to myself too. You know, I'm not standing here on this pulpit saying, like, you guys are doing bad, right? I'm in this. Like, I am messing up too. I'm preaching this to myself. So here's kind of like the encouragements I want to give us. Number one, be bold and have that conversation to invite that non-believing friend or family to come to church because they need the gospel just as much as you and I need it every day. That's the first thing, be bold. And number two, be comforted because Jesus, the head of the body, is still building the church. You know what that means, Jesus being the head of the body? Even in spite of our sins, even in spite of the actions that we, we take to, that ultimately ends up hurting the church, Jesus is still making disciples, and he is with us to the end of age, even in our faithlessness and our weakness. The results are in him. So that's my encouragement. As we consider, prayerfully consider, um, who we can invite to church, um, be bold and be comforted. 
I want to close by asking this, this question. Why is Moses sharing this story? If you look at literary analysis, um, if you just look at um, the power the author has to include detail or to leave out detail, why is Moses putting this antidote here in Exodus? I mean, he could have easily taken it out because if you think about it, for Moses, this is a shameful story. Especially because he is exposing himself to be reluctant and faithless. And he's coming from a culture of honor and shame as well. Moses including these kind of stories of his reluctance is the same thing as us writing our biggest moments of failures on a job resume. Would you do that? Like, if I were to apply to become a teacher at some school, um, why the heck would I put stories of the times I got suspended on my resume on the portion where it says skills and expertise? Got suspended twice. That's, no, that doesn't make sense. So why? Why is Moses sharing this? Moses shares this embarrassing, shameful story of himself to show his audience how God has continued to chip away at his stubborn heart with grace and grace and grace to move him towards obedience. You see, this story here exposes Moses' faithlessness and reluctance But at the same time, it reveals the greatness of God and the grace of God. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because Moses is telling us that every step of his foolishness was met by the grace of God. Even from birth, when Pharaoh ordered all the Hebrew sons to be thrown into the Nile, God showed him grace. When Moses was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and brought into her household, God showed him grace. Even when Moses committed murder, God showed him grace. He protected him. When Moses fled to Midian, God showed him grace. When Moses became a shepherd and started a family, God showed him grace. When Moses was faithless and reluctant towards God, and he even said, send someone else. Even after seeing miracle after miracle, God still showed him grace. And guess what? God has not done showing Moses grace as you'll see if you continue to read the book of Exodus. And dare I say, God is not done showing you grace as well. God is so gracious. You know what Moses is saying to us by providing this story? Moses is really saying this. The only thing that really made me go was God constantly showing me grace. The signs given to Moses were the staff, right? It was the cloak, the water, But for us today, these signs don't mean anything to us. I mean, did you get excited when I said, the staff into snake, woo! Send me, Lord, here I am. Did you get excited when you saw leprosy? Woo! I'm going to be a full-time missionary. But here's the thing. To us as Christians, we have a great sign. The two of the greatest signs that we have given to us that would help us move us from reluctance to obedience is this. It's the cross and it's the empty tomb. You see, the work of justification on the cross, the hope secured for us through the resurrection, these two things should give us the boldness to be radically obedient to God. Why? Because, number one, we're cleared from our shame. We're cleared from our sins. We're cleared from our wrongdoings. And we, in addition to that, we have this hope that cannot be taken away from us. But church, I must confess, I am so frustrated at myself because I am so weak and sinful. And for me, I, I, I think about this. Why isn't the cross and the resurrection enough for me to be obedient? 
Why am I still quick to forget? Why am I still quick to sin? Why do I still struggle with self-preservation? Why do I care so much about my image and how I'm perceived by others? Why do I still struggle with lust? Why do I still struggle with pride and anger? Why am I still so selfish? And a lot of the times, I feel like I suck. I have self-doubt. I'm insecure. And that causes me in response to be reluctant and cynical. But here's the thing. In my lowest moments, where I struggle with self-doubt, Jesus meets me with grace, and this is what he says. Randy, you think you suck? That's actually perfect, because in your mess, in your inadequacies, that gives me the room to move and work grace into your life. You're telling me you're reluctant to follow me because you're imperfect, but I'm telling you I know and I've already taken care of it. It is finished. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So you following me, you obeying me, is not based on how adequate or perfect you are, but rather you following me is based on your willingness to say yes to me in your weakness. This is what makes the gospel so amazing. The gospel comes alive in weakness. All the other religions in the world teaches my strength is made perfect in strength. Christianity is the only religion that boasts in weakness because in our weakness, in our flaws, that's when we see Jesus. And friends, my hope is that the gospel would encourage and uplift us if we're struggling with insecurity, if we're struggling with self-doubt and reluctance because God is so tender and patient And he will meet us with grace upon grace. His grace will never run out for you. I pray that the gospel would remind us to believe that we are not defined by our successes or failures. We're not defined by our income or the type of job that we have or what we've achieved by a certain age. We are not defined by how well we raise our family, or how good of a spouse we are. We're defined solely by the sufficient work of Christ. It is finished. And my prayer for our church is that God's presence and his grace will lead us to be bold and radically obedient to the call to make disciples as we proclaim the gospel message to our unbelieving neighbors. Let's pray together. You know, I do want to lead us in one prayer topic And, you know, one thing I've been praying for um, is people to encounter, uh, people to share the gospel with. Um, And being a pastor, it's it's really hard because we're in a bubble too, and we don't have too much exposure to non-believers. But one thing I do want to encourage us to pray for is uh, for God to identify specific people and specific opportunities where not only we can just share the gospel to them, but we can invite them out to church. Because in our church, um, the gospel is made um, alive. The gospel is displayed. So, church, if we can just spend, like, a moment thinking about that. Um, let's really ask God, hey, who, who do you want me to reach out to? Um, give me a burden for those who are lost. Give me a burden for unbelievers. Let's pray together.